1: And policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Thank you all so much for that warm welcome, and thank you for being here today. I'd like to start today by welcoming you on behalf of our president, Kay James, and welcome you to the, family, to the Heritage Foundation. We're very honored to have with us today a member of our board of directors, Professor Robert George, who's going to discuss with us the natural law foundation of freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. Before I give a little bit more of an introduction of Professor George, although judging from the standing room only crowd here, I don't think you need much of an introduction, Robbie. Um, Let me begin by giving us a little background for why this is such an important topic, especially today. Last summer, we hosted at this very same podium former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who addressed the fact that the United States had withdrawn from the UN Human Rights Council. Ambassador Haley noted that the UNHR had lost its credibility to charge other nations with human rights abuses by electing such terrible offenders like Cuba, Venezuela, and China. Since then, the State Department has taken two bold moves to protect international human rights. Last year, under the leadership of Secretary Mike Pompeo and Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom Sam Brownback, The State Department hosted the first ever ministerial summit on international religious freedom, bringing together government officials, civil society groups, and religious leaders from around the world to strategize about how best to strengthen protections of religious freedom for all people everywhere. And now today, this week, the Secretary is hosting the second such event, and this year he has doubled its size to nearly 1,000 attendees, and there are satellite events occurring all across the city. At Heritage, we welcome this signal from Secretary Pompeo that he is committed to upholding the dignity of every human being worldwide through shining a spotlight on the issue of international human rights. To that end, last week, Secretary Pompeo announced another very important initiative, the formation of a new Commission on Unalienable Human Rights, which will advise him and the State Department on the underlying principles of human rights to inform U.S. foreign policy. As evidenced by the bankruptcy of the UN human rights apparatus, the international human rights movement is greatly in need of such thought leadership as it has come unmoored from its foundations in natural rights and natural law. And so today, in conjunction with the second ministerial summit on international human rights, and just after the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we want to revisit the natural law foundations of the international human rights movement and examine the relationship between natural law foundation and freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. We're deeply honored to host a conversation with the preeminent natural law thinker in America, Robert P. George. He is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University, the director of the James Madison Program on American Ideals and Institutions, and the recipient of the Presidential Citizens Medal. Professor George also served as chairman of the US Commission on International Religious Freedom from 2012 to 2016. He uh, is the author of numerous books on natural law, U.S. Constitution and religious freedom, and we are honored that he wrote one of those books with Heritage's own William Simon Sr. Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy, Ryan Anderson. In fact, Professor George is so widely respected for his scholarship that no less a figure than Justice Elena Kagan once introduced him at a Harvard lecture as one of the nation's most respected legal theorists. She went on to describe his sheer brilliance, analytic power of his arguments, and the range of his knowledge. But most importantly, and this is where I'll conclude, Justice Kagan said, there is still more. There is a deeply principled conviction and profound and enduring integrity. There's many things that we should all wish to emulate about Robbie George's life, but I think that this element of being so thoroughly respected by one's own um, Frequent opponents on the issues is is something that I deeply admire and I appreciate that about you. Thank you so much. As we move into this opportunity to have a discussion with Professor George. I'd also like to introduce Heritage's director of the DeVos Center for Religious Liberty and Civil Society, Emily Gao. Emily is a former State Department official herself and a graduate of Harvard Law School and in in those various roles leads our work here at Heritage Foundation on religious liberty, and we're so glad that she'll be moderating today and leading a discussion with Professor George.
1: Thank you, Charmaine, and thank you everyone for joining us in person and online. Um, I especially want to welcome any visitors who've come to DC for the second annual International Religious Freedom Ministerial. So, back in 1948, uh, skeptics thought it would be impossible to bring together um, diverse nations like India, Russia, China, Lebanon, and America, which represent Hinduism, Marxism, Confucianism, Islam, and Judeo-Christianity. Skeptics thought it would be impossible for them to agree on definitions of universal human rights that all nation states would agree to respect. But that's exactly what representatives of these nations did, led by uh, our First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. This is what they accomplished when they drafted and adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that Charmaine referenced. The freedom of thought, conscience, and religion in Article 18 of the UDHR is one of the fundamental rights in in, in the Declaration. It states... Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public or in private to manifest religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. But in the seven decades since the UDHR was adopted, Challenges to human rights, particularly to religious freedom, have grown. So this is a particularly opportune time for us to re-examine the philosophical foundations of universal human rights with our esteemed guest, Professor George. So Professor George, um, in the early development of international law, Natural law thinkers like Dominican priest Francisco Vitoria and Prussian official Emer de Vattel were highly influential in developing international law. Could you please speak about the role of natural law in laying the foundation of international human rights, particularly the UDHR?
0: Certainly. Uh, Emily, let me begin by uh, thanking you uh, for inviting me to be uh, here today. Of course, thanking my dear old friend Charmaine for that wonderfully generous uh, introduction. Uh, Charmaine, not all of my, uh, intellectual and political adversaries are quite as generous with me as uh, Justice Kagan was, but it was very nice of you to, uh, to quote her very generous comments. Uh, it's a pleasure to be at the Heritage uh, Foundation where I have the honor to be uh, on the board, as Charmaine mentioned, and also to be in the DeVos Center. Uh, the DeVos family are old friends of mine, uh, Betsy and and Dick, their daughter Alyssa, was, uh, was a student of mine at Princeton. So it's just great to uh, be in this particular uh, space for this occasion. And thanks to all of you for coming out. Uh, I'm really sorry uh, that, uh, that Ryan Anderson, uh, whose work is so uh, fantastic, especially in this domain of religious freedom and human rights. I'm very sorry that Ryan is under the weather and can't be, uh, can't be with us today, but I want to uh, applaud the work that he and you uh, Emily and your colleagues here at Heritage uh, are doing to uphold true human rights and especially the fundamental right to uh, to religious freedom uh, to freedom and b- of religion and belief that's so important uh, it's such a great need there are wonderful organizations out there that are working in courtrooms and so forth Beckett Fund and ADF and uh, American Center for Law and Justice and all the others but we need public advocacy and public education as well, and that's where you and Ryan and Heritage are in the forefront, and I really admire that. Well, as Emily pointed out, uh, if we look at the history of human rights discourse and human rights concepts and the very concept of of human rights, we can trace it uh, all the way back into the late medieval uh, period, uh, people who are themselves drawing on the work of very important medieval natural law theorists, natural law thinkers such as St. Thomas Aquinas, who was the greatest Arist- uh, co- commentator, remains greatest commentator ever on Aristotle. So in a certain sense, we can push things all the way back into, uh, into ancient Greece. But um, the theorists that you mentioned uh, were people who were interested in relations among governments, They were uh, uh, interested in what was called the law of nations, Uh, and they were drawing on the broader, deeper tradition of natural law thinking about morality and especially political morality to do their work. So our concepts and our ideas and our language of human rights was fundamentally shaped by that tradition. Now, when uh, – uh, after the Second World War and in the wake of the revelation of the horrible Nazi human rights atrocities, uh, the leaders of the world, many leaders of the world decided, you know, it's really time to sit down and do some serious reflection on human rights. The commission was formed uh, to draft – a declaration of human rights. Many people thought it would be impossible to do because of the differences of opinion and tradition and philosophy uh, of all those who were involved. Uh, but under Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, chairmanship, uh, they did manage uh, to produce what I think is an excellent document. Is it perfect? No. Is it flawless? No. Are there things that I would change, that we would change, that should be changed? Yes, of course. But it's an extraordinary achievement. The story of that achievement is told beautifully and wonderfully by Professor Mary Ann Glendon of Harvard Law School, our leading theorist of human rights uh, today, in her terrific book A World Made New, the story of the UN uh, Declaration of Universal uh, uh, Human Rights. And I would commend that book. To everyone, If you want to know the answer to Emily's question, what are the roots of this? It's really in uh, Marianne's book, A World Made New. But in the book, she lays a great deal of emphasis on the following very important point. Because of the different traditions that were represented among those given responsibility for doing this reflection and doing this writing, Uh, They quickly realized that they would not be able to come up with a single agreed-upon theoretical basis for the defense of human rights. They could agree more on conclusions that there are human rights, that is, rights we have simply in virtue of our humanity. More on that, I'm sure, later. Uh, That there are certain fundamental human rights that always have to be respected. Today, in international law, those are sometimes referred to as non-derogable rights, uh, that uh, governments but not just governments have responsibilities for respecting rights and protecting rights, effectuating rights. They were able to agree on some things despite the fact that they didn't have a common underlying set of reasons for the agreed upon uh, position. Uh, those from uh, the West uh, the Jewish and Christian members, of course, came with this whole legacy that we're talking about very much uh, in mind. But there were Muslim uh, members and Confucian, people drawn from different traditions who don't have those same uh, background understandings, come with a different set of resources, and yet there was agreement. But that doesn't mean that we can do without reflection on the fundamental reasons, on the philosophy of human rights, especially today when we do have very fundamental differences, not so much between or among civilizations as within our own country and culture. We have fundamental differences about what human rights are and what human rights there are. So we're going to have to think about where human rights come from. How do we know that a particular claim of right is a valid one? Rights can't just be whatever you want. So how do we distinguish true rights from false or failed claims that such and so is a right? We are in a situation of conflict about the meaning of rights, about whether this or that is, in fact, a right. How this or that right, if we agree there is such a right, actually applies in this or that set of concrete circumstances. And that means we have to do fundamental philosophy. There is no way out of it. There's no way around it. There's no way to avoid doing it. But I want to lay some stress on the fact that this is largely a debate within our own country and within our own culture, or at least within the West, where we now have a fundamental division, sometimes referred to as the culture war. It's been on, been going on now for decades, but now it has manifested itself in the struggle over the language of human rights, over the discourse of human rights. And the new Human Rights uh, Commission in the State Department, the Commission on Unalienable Rights that Charmaine mentioned, represents, it seems pretty clear, Secretary Pompeo's judgment that... To do his work, to do the work of the U.S. Department of State, we need fresh thinking, philosophical thinking about human rights, what they are, which they are. Uh, How do we know that thus and so is a a valid claim of human rights or not? And, of course, by placing Professor Glendon in the chair uh, for that commission, he's done the nation a wonderful service because there's no one more qualified uh, to lead reflection and discussion of these issues than – uh, Professor Glendon. But naturally, any such commission is controversial. There's no avoiding that, again, because of this fundamental conflict. Secretary Pompeo, when announcing the new commission at the press conference, uh, what was it, about a week ago, quoted the great uh, chief rabbi, former chief rabbi of Britain, Lord Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, on a very important point, and I would commend this to your own thinking as we begin discussing uh, this today, uh, he, he noted uh, Rabbi Sachs's point that there will always be a dominant discourse at any point in any culture or society. And today, the dominant discourse, at least when it comes to international uh, affairs, but also much of our domestic discussion, the dominant discourse is a discourse of rights, a discourse of human rights. And what that means is everybody is going to try to justify or frame his or her position in terms of human rights. Actually, the concrete circumstance in which uh, uh, Rabbi Sachs, Lord Sachs, made the point was with respect to anti-Semitism. He noted that anti-Semitism is a constant, alas, throughout history. You seem to find it everywhere. You even find it where there are no Jews to be anti-Semitic against, but you find it anywhere. This horrible ancient curse of anti-Semitism. But Rabbi Sachs notes that wherever it appears, it's always rationalized in the dominant discourse of the day. So in the medieval period, when the dominant discourse was theological, anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism was rationalized in religious terms. During the Enlightenment, when science or reason is the dominant discourse – It's justified in those terms. During the late 19th early 20th century when what was then known as nationalism had its big heyday anti-Semitism is again justified in the dominant discourse. The Jews are cosmopolitan they're not linked to any particular nation they're a separate uh, uh, nation that has no valid place within uh, other nations and so forth. So any evil will be justified. Not just good things but even evil things like anti-Semitism will be justified in the dominant discourse of the day. And of course, today you find anti-Semitism justified in the discourse of human rights, because, as Jonathan Sachs says, the dominant discourse will always provide the terms in which anything, good or bad, is uh is advocated. So I look forward to the to the work of the Commission. I do commend Secretary Pompeo for launching this very important project. The language of human rights has been manipulated. It has been hijacked. We need to get rigorous and serious about it. His appointments are excellent, from Marianne Glendon at the top all the way down. So I'm looking forward to, I think, an important contribution to the public good.
1: Uh, well, thank you very much. I think that's an excellent um, introduction into the current um, as you said, uh, culture war within the human rights movement. Uh, I think it would be really helpful if you could explain to us the the way that natural law, ta- uh, the the relationship between natural law and human dignity, because human dignity is what the um, what was agreed upon in 1948 by the various members of the um, committee that drafted the UDHR. And what does what does natural law have to say about human dignity? and and therefore also the universality of human rights that human rights are the same for everyone everywhere regardless of what culture or country you live in
0: yes that's right so let's begin by just asking ourselves the question what does it mean to say that there is a human right what is a human right well if there are such things as human rights if there are such realities then a human right is a right you have simply in virtue of your humanity. It's a right that's not a privilege bestowed upon you by a king or a president or a parliament or a congress or a court, God help us. It's none of those things. It's something we possess just in virtue of our humanity. Now, rights, of course, are not material realities, right? They're not like microphones and papers and table surfaces. They're not material realities. They're immaterial realities. They're principles. Now, that doesn't mean they're not true. That doesn't even mean they're not objective. But it means that we can't just look out into the world and see them. They can't be empirically verified. Philosophical arguments need to be made to reach them. Philosophical reasoning has to be engaged in in order to reach the conclusion, a valid conclusion, that there are such things as human rights, much less what human rights there actually are. But again, if human rights exist, they are rights we possess simply in virtue of our humanity, which means you don't need to achieve them. You don't need to uh, uh, be really pretty or really smart or really strong or any of those things. The weakest, most vulnerable, the outcast, uh, the dilapidated uh, person, the homeless man, drug-addicted man under the bridge, they all have and have equally human rights. Now, if there is such a thing as rights we have simply in virtue of our humanity, it must be because there's something very special about our humanity. It's that very special thing, that very specialness that we refer to when we refer to using a fairly modern term, human dignity. Human beings have a certain... Dignity, sometimes translated as worth, or or value, fundamental, intrinsic value. In other words, human beings are not just means to other ends, cogs in the wheel, the wheel of say a collective, the state, or the fatherland, or the Führer, or what have you. No, human beings are ends to which other things, and entire institutions, legal systems, political systems, educational systems, our means. The human being, the human person, is what is fundamental. And it's the interests of the human person, the welfare, the flourishing of the human person that we're concerned about when we identify the rights of the human person. Now, on the account that I think is soundest of human rights and of human dignity, uh, human rights are not where we begin and reason from. They are rather things that we, principles, that we reason to, principles to which we reason. Beneath the concept of human rights is the concept of human good, human well-being, human flourishing. We believe people have rights because they have dignity, which means that they are good, their welfare, their flourishing matters. They're not just instruments for other ends. This is where forms of socialism and fascism go so badly wrong they treat the collective as the end to which people persons human beings are means that's exactly backwards that's the problem with soviet or communist uh uh, or chinese uh, communism that's the problem with uh hitler's nazism the human the person is devalued relegated to the status of a mere instrument an object objectified to be used as opposed to being an end but if we think of the human being as an end then it's the flourishing of the human being that we're fundamentally concerned about and among those concerns is a concern with justice fairness among human beings Part of the good and aspect of the diverse, variegated, complex good of human beings is the good of living in justice and harmony, right relation with others. And a properly ordered state is concerned with justice, doing justice and preserving justice and advancing justice. The same is true, though, for private associations, for religions, and for us as individuals. Sometimes the precise object of our action is to bring about justice or Greater justice or to rectify an injustice because justice is an aspect of the flourishing of human beings. But justice is also concerned with the overall flourishing of human beings. So rights considered as principles of justice will be specified by reference to the human good. The great, the greatest of the 20th century liberal political philosophers, John Rawls, whose magisterial works, A Theory of Justice in 1971, and Political Riz- R- Liberalism in 1993 dominated mainstream, juris- uh, mainstream political theory through his lifetime and beyond. Rawls, for whom I have great admiration in many ways, got this exactly backwards. He famously said, the right and rights are prior to the good. He believed we could come up with a conception of political right, the right ordering of political society and political institution, and indeed of the rights people have, independent of any consideration of controversial claims about the human good, what makes for or detracts from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. In fact, Rawls' so-called – he self-identified what he called anti-perfectionism simply is the principle that government must avoid acting, making policy or making law – based on controversial conceptions of what makes for detracts from a valuable or morally worthy way of life. That's completely wrong. In fact, the only way we can figure out what rights people have, or that people have rights, is by beginning with the human good, as tough and controversial as that is, because it's the good, it's our understanding of the flourishing of human beings, what's in their interest what's for their integral well-being, that we can specify what rights, in fact, people have and how rightly to order our institutions, arranging not only, concerning ourselves not only with relations, just relations among individuals in society and between the government and society and, and individuals but also concerning ourselves with the institutions of civil society, beginning with the family and religious communities that have primary responsibility and play the primary role, at least in a justly and rightly ordered society, in providing health, education, and welfare to people and transmitting to each new generation the qualities, the virtues, the Attributes that enable people to lead successful lives and be good citizens, especially in Republican democracies um, uh, such as ours. Uh, So I think when we're thinking about human rights, we shouldn't think of human rights as premises, but rather as conclusions. What's more fundamental to get us to those human rights, which are real and important and in many cases non-derogable, unalienable, absolute, What we need to do to get there, to understand human rights, understand what human rights are, is think really carefully and rigorously and seriously about the human good in all of its complexity.
1: Thank you. That was very helpful. Can you now talk about the relationship between natural law and the freedom of religion? And also, if you would, contrast the natural law foundation with some of the um, other philosophies.
0: Yeah, uh, let me do that. So, um, historically, and today, uh, there seem to be three major contenders. There, there are some others that are in um, uh, secondary roles. The three major contenders for theories of uh, human rights or political justice more broadly. Uh, one is utilitarianism. The idea that in Morally significant choosing. One should choose the option, whether in politics or in personal life, that overall in the long run promises the net best proportion of benefit to harm, however benefit and harm are defined. This is the view famously associated with Jeremy uh, Bentham, who said that the right thing to do is to to do the thing that will advance the greatest good to the greatest number. Now, you might think, and you would be right to think, that this is very problematic as a basis for human rights or for rights of any kind. And Bentham himself regarded the idea of what we would call human rights, natural rights, as not only any old nonsense, but nonsense on stilts. And yet, if anybody has a claim of being a founding father of modern liberalism, it's Bentham's disciple, 19th century disciple, the great English liberal philosopher, John Stuart Mill, who in his very, very important work on liberty, which uh, I'm sure is familiar to many of you, many of you probably read it all the way through, But Mill attempted to, in effect, derive a theory of rights on utilitarian terms, on on a a revised kind of uh, Benthamism. And people still try to do that. The element of truth that I find there, and I'm a rather severe critic of utilitarianism generally, and I think it's hopeless as a theory uh, for defending the idea of human rights. But the element or kernel of truth I find there is I think Mill was right to reject the idea of what he called abstract right. So, for example, when he's talking about freedom of thought and expression in the second chapter of, of, of On Liberty, he says it can't just be an abstract right that somehow just falls down out of the heavens. That if there is a right to freedom of thought and expression, or freedom of thought and discussion, I guess is how he puts it, uh, it's because there is a human good or a set of human goods. There are human goods that are protected by the right. Because the right is not contra Rawls prior to the good. The good is rather prior to the right. You need to understand the good that's being protected. In Mill's case, I think right quite rightly in defending the freedom of expression, truth-seeking. Truth as truth a human good, an aspect of human well-being and fulfillment that's being protected. Mill argues that you've got to understand that good in order to see the point. Of recognizing and honoring a right to freedom expression, or you could fill in the gap with any fill in the blank with any other uh, uh right he's rejecting the idea of abstract rights, and as I say, I think that's correct. What I reject is his utilitarianism, the idea that there can be a workable master moral principle that says in politics or anything else that says choose the option and that overall and in the long run will produce the the best net uh, proportion of benefit to harm or maximize happiness or maximize pleasure or any of these maximization uh, strategies. The alternative is the theory of human rights or unalienable rights as abstract rights. And this is something in the ballpark of what figures like John Rawls have in mind. So they want to abstract from any consideration of the human good because they don't want to shape fundamental political ideas or institutions or arrangements in line with controversial conceptions of the human good. That's that anti-perfectionism that I told you about before. So a figure like Rawls comes up with the idea that, well, we should choose principles of justice. We should identify principles for uh, a well-ordered society, Uh, first by conceiving of justice as fairness and then recognizing that the way to ensure that fairness is preserved, justice in that sense is preserved, is to choose our principles of justice behind what he calls a veil of ignorance in what he calls the original position. So he imagines a position where uh, you know nothing about what makes you different from anybody else. All you know are the things that all human beings have in common, what he calls primary goods and basic facts of human psychology. But anything that distinguishes you, male, female, race, ethnicity, Wealth poverty anything that makes people different religious beliefs anything that makes people different from other people you don't know and yet in that original position behind that veil of ignorance you now have to choose principles that you will live under principles of justice that you will live under when you come out from behind that veil of ignorance out of the original position to live in society what would you choose those principles would be fair so those are the correct principles of of justice. And I've spent most of my career trying to explain why that doesn't work, why you can't abstract from the human good or considerations of human well-being in that way. And imagine you could choose principles like that behind an original position where you don't know anything about what makes you different from uh, anyone else. And the third approach is the natural law approach. It's the approach that I've represented in my own writing that, that Ryan Anderson is has uh, uh, has uh, represented that John Finnis, the author of the great, uh, the Oxford philosopher's author of the great work Natural Law and Natural Rights, the most important modern contribution to natural law uh, philosophy, uh, represents. And like Mill, we're really interested in rooting human rights in the human good. But unlike Mill, we reject a utilitarian approach. We don't think you can doctor up Benthamism. Uh, to make it work for these purposes, or for that matter, for uh, uh, for any purposes. So uh, our way is the hard way. It's the tough road. It means thinking very seriously, deeply, critically about the human good in all its complexity and uh, variety, knowing that reasonable people of goodwill can and do disagree about what makes for or might detract from a valuable and morally worthy way of life. And yet, there is no way around that if we're going to be serious about human rights. One of the problems for the second school of thought, for the contemporary liberal or progressive uh, school of thought, is it provides a standard for the identification of abstract rights, which it itself consistently fails to meet and, and fails to meet because it cannot meet My critique of Rawls over all these many years, and and I'm by no means original in this. Alistair has made the same critique. Michael Sandel has made the same critique. John Finnis has made it. Nicholas Woltersorff has made it. The critique is that Rawls and the Rawlsians end up smuggling into their theory the very things they claim are impermissible to consider, ideas about human well-being and fulfillment, ideas about the human good. Try to solve the abortion question Controversial question of rights, right? Some people say women have a right to abortion. Other people say, I'm on their side, that the unborn child has a right not to be aborted. Try resolving that question while abstracting from questions of the human good. Or try figuring out what is marriage? I know a great book by that title. What is marriage, right? Try figuring that out while abstracting from questions of, controversial questions of the human good when the folks on the liberal side make their argument for the revisionist view of marriage the one that the court came down for in the Obergefell decision they haven't abandoned they haven't uh, uh, abandoned thought about what's for the human good or what's right and fundamentally right and wrong there's no moral neutrality there they've got a particular morally loaded point of view they think it's right because they think it's morally right all right, now, I disagree with them about that, but my more fundamental point is that they've got a view. They're not arguing from a position of neutrality, which according to their theory, you're supposed to be doing. You know, It's out of bounds to rely on controversial conceptions of human good or moral right and wrong for those uh, those purposes. So uh, those, I think, are the theories that are on offer, and, and I say that we have no real choice but to take the, the hard road of doing the Hard work of thinking about human well-being and fulfillment, in all its complexity, in order to arrive at sound ideas about what human rights we actually do have, and what claims to human rights, though their claims are not valid as claims.
1: Um, Well, since in the last seven decades since the UDHR was drafted, how do you see um, the the conversations about the relationship between natural law and international human rights, freedom of religion developing. Is the understanding of natural law growing stronger or weaker?
0: That's a sociological question I I think. Uh, And there's no question that the dominant uh, discourse in the intellectual sector certainly in the academic culture has been the second one. It's been the liberal one. Uh, Rawlsianism being just the most prominent of all the liberal uh, theories of political right and of of uh, of of human rights, uh, I think it's intellectually a failure uh, for all the reasons that I've been articulating for all these years. I may be wrong about it. I may be right about it. But that's my my view. But what's clear is that it has been dominant. So it shaped uh, the views of people who constitute themselves the opinion leaders, the opinion shaping elite. Uh, because of its dominance in academic life, for, I think largely because of its dominance in academic life, it's become dominant in journalism, the arts, the professions, much of government, much of corporate uh, America. And you know, that's why the left, for all intents and purposes, culturally, uh, has had such success in using human rights discourse to advance its agenda. Now, from Secretary Pompeo's point of view and from mine, that's a hijacking. They don't see it as a hijacking. They see it as providing the correct conception of human rights, taking the discourse and putting in the correct ideology. So the whole question is: Do you agree that that ideology is correct? It, it's not human rights that the concept of human rights that's driving that's driving the ideology. This is the important thing to see: It's not the concept of human rights that's driving the ideology. It's the ideology that is reshaping the idea of human rights.
1: So also in the last seven decades since the UDHR was passed, we've seen an explosion of the human rights community. So the UN has grown tremendously. number of treaties has multiplied. People who are advocating for human rights is also growing. And yet with religious freedom, we see... Um, study decline of religious freedom around the world. I believe Pew Research Center just released a report um, this week that showed continuing decline of religious freedom. Uh, we know that 80% of the world's people live under serious restrictions of religious freedom. Um, you've written extensively on the um, enemies of, of conscience uh, in your book um, on the the, sec- the Western secular attacks on conscience also you served as the commission chairman of the US commission on international religious freedom which dealt with the attacks from religious extremism um much of the world we see that responsible for the most violent persecution like the isis genocide the genocide in uh, of the rohingya in burma with all this explosion of the apparatus for addressing human rights violations and yet continuing decline in religious freedom. Um, Can you speak to that and what you think might be some of the causes of that?
0: It's a terrible uh, tragedy, and uh, it looks like it's only getting worse. Uh, The situation in some particular areas is improving, but in others it's certainly continuing to decline. Um, I traded back and forth the chairmanship of uh, the Commission on Religious Liberty with Katrina lantos who's a great human rights uh, uh, advocate. And she and I had exactly the same um, uh, view of this, that there seem to be two different families of threats to religious freedom as a fundamental human right. One is religious extremism of various sorts in different places. It's not just Islamic extremism, though there is Islamic extremism. Don't, you know, no no question about that. Um, There are also a lot of Muslims who are pushing back against Islamic extremism. There are Muslims who are in leadership positions advocating human rights. They don't get near religious freedom. They don't get nearly enough attention um, uh, and should get a good deal more. But, you know, you can recognize Islamic extremism while at the same time acknowledging that uh, much uh, work in favor of uh, religious freedom is being done by Muslims and being done by devout and faithful Muslims in the the name of Islam. But it's not just Islamic. Look at the situation among Hindu uh, extremists uh, in India. Again, not all Hindus. There are lots of Hindus who are on the side of the angels when it comes to religious freedom and other human rights, but there are also Hindu uh, extremists. Um, uh, There are various victims. Uh, Alas, Jews are often victims. Christians throughout the world no matter where you look these days it seems to be the persecution of Christians from Korea to Vietnam. Now, there often there are other people as well being persecuted but in the mix are uh, Christians um, sometimes Muslims are victims the Uyghur Muslim community in China are victims of uh, religious freedom abuses the Rohingya um, Muslim community uh, in Burma again Myanmar victims of uh, religious uh, uh, persecution Sometimes the persecutors are atheists. sometimes the persecuted are uh, are atheists. as you say, Emily, uh, the best data we have show uh, that uh, something in the vicinity of three quarters of the world's population live under regimes or in cultural circumstances where religious freedom is routinely violated. So on the one side, the threat, as Katrina and I noticed, comes from religious extremism. on the other side, it comes from militant. Uh, and increasingly illiberal secularism. So people trying to uh, uh, ban the public expression of religion in Western nations. You saw this most recently in Canada. You see it in other nations in Europe, for example. Uh, Efforts to ban uh, uh, circumcision of male infants by Jewish or Muslim uh, communities. Uh, Efforts to drive religion from the public square and put it in a purely private, uh, sphere, drive it to the margins, uh, the the French laicite uh, approach, which is, by the way, in the language uh, that Emily read from the UN Declaration, Article 18, explicitly rejected as contrary to the fundamental human right to religious freedom. We have to remember, the right to religious freedom I'll be saying this today i'm over at the ministerial the right to religious freedom is not reducible to the mere right to worship that language has come out of previous state departments and to the extent that it is an effort to diminish the scope of religious freedom it's really a corruption of the human rights idea of religious freedom as the language indicated that emily read The right to religious freedom is not simply the right to worship, not simply the right to say your prayers before dinner or on your knees at bedtime or in your temple or synagogue or church or or mosque. It's the right to express your religious views and feelings and, and sentiments in public and not just the wearing of religious jewelry, for example, or a headscarf, all of which is important, but also the right to bring your religiously inspired convictions about justice and the human good and the common good and human rights into the public square and vie in circumstances of peace and freedom for the allegiance of your fellow citizens. One of the problems with the narrow definition of religious freedom and you see this in Professor Rawls's 1993 book in Political Liberalism. Here we have a heroic effort to defend this liberal conception of religious freedom but he gets himself tied up in knots trying to figure out How he can avoid condemning Martin Luther King's witness in the public square since King was speaking and advocating in specifically religious terms for views that he held fundamentally on a religious basis, the brotherhood of all men under the fatherhood of God. The sense of racism is a sin against God, is a sin against the God who made human beings in his very image and likeness with no discrimination between races or, or, or ethnic groups. So it's really important to understand this right to religious freedom broadly to include the public as well as the private, to include political, the right of political advocacy in the mode of Martin Luther King. Whether you're whether you're advocating against segregation or for the pro-life cause or for this or that or any other cause, that's those are all important dimensions of religious freedom. Emily, I should say a word about what I think the right to religious freedom is a right to. I, I committed myself as a natural law theorist of human rights to the idea that the good is prior to the right, so the reverse of the Rawlsian position that we want to defend things as human rights when they protect human goods. So what's the human good or set of human goods that are protected by the right of religion, the right of religious freedom? Understood in this broad way, as it's articulated in Article 18 of the UN Declaration. Well, of course, the right to religious freedom protects a lot of things. Uh, It provides a counterweight to uh, public Political power—you saw this, for example, in Poland, when the Catholic Church was the support structure for solidarity and standing up against the tyrannical Soviet puppet regime in in uh, in, in Poland. You saw it in other places in Eastern Europe. You've seen it at other t- at other times in places in in uh, history. You look at the Bible, and often, of course, it's the religious witness of the of God's people, the chosen people, standing up against the tyrannical. King. So there's all of that, and all of that is important. Religions and also as as institutions of civil society play important roles in providing health, education, and welfare to people and transmitting the values necessary and the habits and virtues necessary for people to lead successful lives and be good citizens, all that. But in its most fundamental sense, I think that the good that is protected by the right of religious freedom is the following good and I'll attach a name to it, but if you don't like the name, give it a different name. The important thing is the thing, not the name. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's tripartite. It is the raising of basic fundamental questions of meaning and value, of existence, what philosophers call existential questions. Where did we come from? Is there somewhere we're going? Is there a point to all this? Is there a more than merely human source of meaning and value or sources of meaning and value? Is the material and efficient causality we experience and know in the world all there is? Or is there more? Is there meaning? If so, what is that? Is there meaning of life? Do we have responsibilities to others? Are we under a mandate to, for example, do unto others as we'd have them do unto us, a norm we find articulated in one way or another in all of the great religions and philosophical traditions of the of the world. It's the raising of those questions. That's number one. Number two, it's the effort honestly to answer those questions. Not with wishful thinking, uh, not with what's going to make you look good in your community. Uh, the honest effort to answer those questions. And then third, the determination to live with authenticity and integrity in light of one's best answers whether those are atheistic or theistic, whether they are Muslim or Christian or whatever they are. It's that good, which I call the good of religion. Call it something else if you don't like that name. But it's that good that is protected, fundamentally protected, by the right of religious freedom. And the tyrants who, through history, going all the way back to the biblical oppressive kings, All the way forward to China today or to those who in the name of a, I think, misguided secularism try to drive religion to the margins. All those who offend against religious freedom are fundamentally offending against the right of people to realize that critical aspect of their humanity. Their well-being and fulfillment. Even my old friend Richard Dawkins with whom I drank many coffees and had many lunches when I was a, a, a instructor a Lecturer uh, in New College, Oxford, many, many years ago. Richard and I were friends. I haven't seen him in a long time. But even Dawkins, the famous atheist, would be the first to say that the raising of those existential questions and the honest effort to answer them and the determination to live by one's answers, whatever they are, with authenticity and integrity, he would admit that those are essential to the leading of a human life. He would not want his children not to do that. Even if his children disappointed him by reaching what he would regard as the wrong conclusions, say Christianity, because there's something essential to our humanity about asking those questions and then trying to answer them honestly and live by them. If our answers are theistic, trying to get ourselves in harmony with God, doing God's will, uh, being part of a community dedicated to doing God's will, to answering God's invitation and his call. To us, the living up to our responsibility as creatures made in his very image and likeness. But notice on this account, everybody has the right to religious liberty. And not just religious people. So do atheists. We, we, we realize, although from a, from a religious point of view it would only be a fragment, but nevertheless a fragment of the real thing of religion that Albert Camus participates in or realizes in his life by authentically asking those questions, by trying to answer them honestly and live with authenticity and integrity. Even the right of the atheist to religious freedom must be respected, which is why it would be wrong, violently, terribly wrong, to force an atheist to go to a Catholic mass or participate in a uh, a Jewish ceremony or a Muslim ceremony that he or she objected to as a matter of principle as an, an, an atheist. So in this sense, Emily, a right like religious freedom is a universal right because it's responsive to, it protects a universal good. There is no one for whom the good I described is not essential to their humanity, part of their very humanity, part of what it means to be a human being. We would be lesser if we did not ask those questions. Answer, the, answer them as honestly as we can, and encourage our children to answer them honestly. Live with integrity in light of our best answers, and not be a fraud. Not go to church because it's going to make me look good, or not go to church because it's going to make me look bad in my community, which may be a university or a communist system or something. <laughs> We're going to going to church is something yeah, yeah, icky. Um, no. That's part of our humanity, and the right protects that aspect of our humanity. You you see, again, if, if, if if, if I've come near persuading you, it's because you're seeing that the right to religious freedom, like other human rights, is not an abstract right. It's rooted in things essential to our humanity, to our good.
1: You have uh, described man as a conscientious truth seeker, and what we see currently in the international human rights community are a couple of different attacks on the ability of man to seek the truth that you've been describing. One comes from the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. They have advanced a concept at the United Nations called defamation of religions, in which criticism or disagreement with um, particular religions, particularly Islam, would be considered to be a uh, human rights violation. And then also the UN Secretary General has recently announced a global campaign to counter hate speech. And the UN Independent Expert on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity has called for all countries to pass legislation, um, banning speech that is considered to be critical of sexual orientation or gender identity, specifically singling out uh, religious leaders. How should we think about um, these new claims to human rights and fundamental right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion?
0: We need to fight back against them with all our might because, again, these are anti-human at the end of the day. We humans are truth seekers. And as John Stuart Mill, uh, in that second chapter of On Liberty, rightly pointed out, truth cannot be authentically sought in the absence of freedom. To seek the truth, we need the freedom to seek the truth. We need to be free, as Mill pointed out, Not only from the coercive power of the state, which is what some of these uh, groups and individuals that you're talking about want to use against dissenters from whatever their orthodoxy is, but also free from the tyranny of public opinion, what what Mill called the tyranny of public opinion, what we might call political correctness or groupthink which is such a big problem today as increasingly educators are noticing in our academic institutions, and not just colleges and universities. If if you're a college or university professor, you know that our students these days don't need to be indoctrinated because they come pre-indoctrinated from high school and even even middle school. And it's that kind of tyranny, whether it's coercive or whether it's just pure pressure, that impedes the truth-seeking process that is important for the seeking of religious truth, to be sure, but also for all other sorts of truth, the truth about Justice, the truth about science, the truth about any uh, domain of human uh, inquiry. So we cannot yield to this. One of the things that uh, pleases me about the makeup of the uh, State Department Commission is it has outstanding representatives from various great traditions of thought and faith. Uh, Hamza Yusuf from the Muslim tradition, Mayr Soloveitchik, a leading uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbi and public uh, intellectual. Uh, I mentioned uh, Katrina Lantos-Sweat, who traded the chairmanship with me back and forth of the Commission on uh, International Human Rights, who's now a member of this commission. Professor Glendon herself representing the Catholic uh, uh, tradition. Uh, David Pan. There are so many people representing different perspectives and traditions of wisdom and thought about fundamental human rights. And I suspect that all of them are sensitive to the need for freedom, the need to avoid having human rights discourse hijacked, to impose conformist thinking uh, against potential dissenters. Uh, We need to be concerned with the freedom of speech, with the freedom of expression, the freedom of discussion. Tyrants of any sort, whether they're the right or of the left, of any sort are always going to try to squelch criticism of their favored views of them themselves of their administrations of their ideologies of their religions and they're going to treat any criticism as a an offense against decency or an offense against the common good or an offense against what's right and we should by now in this late season of our human experience have learned to say absolutely no to that the freedom of discussion the freedom of thought is absolutely essential religious people certainly have the right to the robust uh, uh, sense of religion that I outlined earlier. No question about that. They have the right to bring their – I'm one of them, a religious person myself. I think I have the right to bring my uh, religiously inspired convictions into the public square and vie for the allegiance of my fellow citizens. Make the case. Uh, Try to convert them. If my religion says I should try to convert – try to – convert them. But remember what I said when I mentioned this point earlier, the conditions of that are peace and freedom. No violence, no coercion, no imposing groupthink, no silencing dissenters and critics, a fair truth-seeking discussion. And people who are genuinely interested in the truth, whatever their faith is, if they're genuinely interested in the truth, they will not squelch it. they will not squelch freedom of discussion if they're genuinely interested in the truth they will want people thinking deeply critically, and for themselves. They will oppose censorship and coercion of ideas um, th- This is a genuine danger and it's a it's a it's a danger because um uh, It's coming from different places. It's not just those people or those people. It's those people and those people. Sometimes it's secularists. Sometimes it's religious extremists. Sometimes it's communist regimes like uh, the communist Chinese or the Vietnamese or the Korean regime, atheist uh, regimes. Sometimes it's the opposite of atheist regimes. It's fundamentalist uh, religious uh, regimes, but we have to stop it wherever we see it. And we certainly can't allow it to take root here in our own society where people are silenced from criticizing uh, criticizing behavior or ideas that they uh, disagree with on the grounds that it constitutes hate speech. One of the shocking things I find about even my own uh, students when they first enter my class on constitutional interpretation uh. They come in believing that there is a hate speech exception to the First Amendment. This is not a problem I had five years ago, or ten years ago. Maybe I had it five years ago and didn't know it, but I didn't notice it until just the last two or three years. And that shows you that there's kind of a change in consciousness, and they're being fed this idea that there's this thing, hate speech, which means criticizing my behavior, or criticizing my ideology, or criticizing my... Faith, Whether that faith is a traditional religious faith or is a secularist uh, 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 faith, whether it's a religion or a pseudo religion. Now, of course, there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects my right and yours and everybody else's right to criticize other people's religion, to criticize other people's behavior, to criticize other people's moral beliefs, ideological views, politics. And that's a precious gift that we have in this country. We got there ahead of most people in the world and we should not give that up. And that includes, by the way, fighting for it in our universities and schools. You know, we need to be encouraging our students to question the dominant ideologies, whatever they are, in their high schools and colleges. Not rewarding them for conformism or for groupthink, whether it's with safe spaces or with hate speech rules or speech codes or or anything like that. Of all places, our colleges, our schools need to be places of robust civil, no name-calling and that kind of nonsense, but robust civil discourse where everything's on the table and we're entitled and even encouraged to unsettle each other by challenging each other's most deeply held, fundamental, even identity-forming convictions. End of sermon. Do
1: you have time for one
0: question? Yes, absolutely, yeah.
1: We have time for one question from the
0: audience. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Right over here. Um, Can you use the microphone?
2: So earlier today, actually, um, we heard from someone who preached for exactly the opposite by saying that he himself vowed not to use the word hate and would implore others to do the same because in his mentality everything is rooted in language. That's where everything comes from. So by avoiding saying just the word hate and other quote unquote, like heavy four letter words, we could veer away from negative emotions and feelings that stem from the language surrounding it. So what are your thoughts on a take like that? Whereas you say that we shouldn't be censoring ourselves at all. He says that By censoring ourselves to a degree, we practice respect that is rooted within ourselves. What is your opinion on that?
0: Sure. Uh, Of course, I didn't hear that other presentation, so I don't know the details. I only have what you told me. But notice that I said what we need to encourage is robust but civil discourse. So all ideas are on the table, but we should insist that people do business in the proper dis- the proper currency of intellectual discourse. And that's a currency that consists of reasons, arguments, and evidence. Now, my calling you a four-letter word, or my insulting your mother, or uh, using a nasty expression for your ethnic group or racial group, that's not reasons, arguments, and evidence. Right Now, we need to be careful about empowering the state or university officials too much to come down on that because that can be abused and veer over into the stifling of ideas and opinions. But there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right about me disciplining myself not to be abusive, not to call people names but to force myself rather to do business in that currency of reasons, arguments, and and uh, evidence. And when somebody is willing to do business in that currency, I'm willing to do business with them no matter how radically I disagree with them. I'll give you an a, a example. So one of my colleagues at Princeton is a famous utilitarian philosopher named Peter Singer uh, who argues for, among other things, the moral permissibility of infanticide. Not just abortion, by the way. Uh, not just late-term abortion, but after the baby's already born, you've taken the baby home from the hospital. Singer thinks that baby is still not yet a person and therefore doesn't have the dignity of a person and therefore may morally permissibly be killed. If you kill that baby, you don't do any wrong to the baby. Now, you might wrong the parents or something like that. But if you're the parents and there's nobody else whose interests involved and you just don't want this baby, who may or may not be handicapped, but you just don't want this baby, he doesn't think there's anything morally wrong with killing a baby. Now, I'm pro-life, right? You can imagine how shocked and scandalized I am by the idea that you would kill not only an unborn baby, you kill a newborn baby. And there's nothing morally wrong with that? And yet, when a couple of years ago, the um, uh, handicapped rights group who, who, who at about the same time had done a protest uh, here at the Heritage Foundation – I'm not sure why they were protesting us. We're on their side. But… Uh, <laughs> Uh, they did a protest at Princeton where they demanded that Professor Singer be fired and that his tenure be revoked and he be driven out of, uh, out of town and condemned by the university and so forth and so on. And I published an op-ed piece defending not only his abstract right to freedom of expression, a guy who's as far from me politically as you can get, but actually defended his right to freedom of expression as it's rooted in the good we share of truth-seeking. Because he's willing to do business and he always does business in the currency of intellectual discourse. He makes arguments. He gives reasons. He provides evidence. Hasn't persuaded me, but I'll tell you what, I make my arguments better today because I've had to deal with arguments that he's made about the status of a newborn baby. What gives a human being value? Is it consciousness? Is it self-awareness? Is it the ability to deliberate? A lot of people who regard themselves as pro-choice – say, well, when a baby's born, then the baby is suddenly a member of the human community with rights. But until the baby's born, the baby has no rights, and therefore we're for abortion. But of course, we wouldn't be for infanticide. Singer rightly says, birth doesn't change anything about the baby. You know, There must be something that gives the baby dignity. If it's not just in virtue of his humanity, which you have before you're even born, then it's got to be something else. What could it be it must be some level of self-awareness or ability to think or or um, uh, uh, reflect or deliberate or something like that. And so he's forced me to ask myself the question, well, you know, what is it exactly about the human being, whether born or unborn, that gives the human being dignity? Is it the immediately exercisable capacities for deliberation, judgment, reasoning, uh, abstract reasoning, choice, and so forth? Or is it something else, which is what I actually think it is, which is the root capacities or radical capacities for precisely those sorts of activities that you have even from the earliest embryonic stage? I think the only way to avoid the argument for infanticide is to say that it's got to be the root capacities and not the immediately exercisable capacities. But because Singer thinks it's the immediately exercisable capacities, he's driven to the conclusion that infanticide could be morally uh, per, uh, permissible so I've actually developed my thinking a lot in wrestling with Professor Singer and that's what happens no matter how far away from you ideologically or morally or politically or religiously a person is that's what happens when you're doing business in with each other when you're engaging dialectically using reasons and arguments and discourse as the currency of the converse, uh, reasons and arguments and evidence as the currency of the conversation
1: well, I would like to close by uh, quoting somebody you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Katrina Lantos-Sweat, who incidentally was also appointed to be on the Commission on International Religious Freedom by uh, then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. And she said that you are a true human rights champion whose compassion for victims of oppression and your wisdom about international religious freedom shine through all the that the commission has accomplished. And to your compassion and your wisdom, I want to add a special note of thanks for your courage to take on these really difficult and challenging issues um, uh, in the face of a lot of opposition. And so on behalf of Heritage and the DeVos Center, we're so grateful for you coming today. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you. Thank you.